The following is a conversation between Peter Georgescu, Chairman Emeritus of Young and Rubicam, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Peter Georgescu has lived an extraordinary life. He was born on the eve of the Second World War in Bucharest, Romania, arrived in America at 15 years of age, and ultimately went on to become the CEO of the world-famous advertising agency, Young and Rubicam. It is from this perspective that he has viewed, with increasing alarm, the specter of income inequality in this country and the dangers that it poses to society, all captured in his most recent book, Capitalists Arise and Income Inequality, Grow the Middle Class, Heal the Nation. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken many of the issues that Peter has championed for years and put them on the front pages across America. And he is here with us today to discuss all of that. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Peter. Denver, delighted to be with you. I'm really thrilled to be here and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for doing this. You have been saying for a number of years now that there has been a false narrative of universal prosperity going on. The stock market's at a record high, unemployment's at a record low. The story has been that everything is great. In fact, it's never been better. We all realize now that was not the case. What really has been going on? Well, it's very interesting that you put it this way. Just recently, I was listening to our chairman of the Fed, Mr. Powell, said, you know, the economy was great before COVID came along. And so eventually we're going to be just fine because the economy was so strong, so powerful. And I said to myself, what is he talking about? <laughs> the fact of the matter is that he knows what's going on because the Fed, of all people, has all the numbers. And so they know it. But even the Fed didn't quite have the guts, I can only presume, to deal with the reality of what America was like. The truth is, by the numbers, he is quite correct. The GDP growth of around 3% or so for the last three or four years was quite admirable, given the conditions in the rest of the world. We looked a shiny object on the hill. But if you really dug underneath that, you found out that life isn't quite so. What became obvious to me when I started to work on this inequality issue some six years ago, it's still a very troubling issue. And as you said, COVID just kind of took all the clothes off. <laughs> it did. And one saw us with all the ugliness that we have been in. What I mean by that is simply, if you look at GDP growth of, let's say, around 3%, what that really meant is that about 30% of us, us the plutocrats, mm -hmm. the folks who are well off, the folks who make the rules, the folks who control most everything, we control business, we control the government, we control education, we control most of the institutions in America, we are doing great. Life is about as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, about 70 or so percent of America has been struggling and has been struggling for years. Let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the stock market. The stock market has been booming. It's been unbelievable. And it's true. And there are two issues with that. The most important issue is that only the very rich amongst us, this 30% or so of us, 
really benefit from the stock market because fundamentally, and I'll give you one statistic, 84% of the value of the stock market is in the hands of the top 10% of Americans by income. Mm -hmm. That's where it's at. And the vast majority of America, the market is irrelevant. And yet we see many in the administration, our president, et cetera, look at the stock market as the epitome, the justification of the power and strength of an American economy. So that's one thing. It benefits us 30%. The second problem with the stock market is that it is engineered. Mm-hmm. It's financially engineered. About 91% of the operating profit of business goes to the shareholder. And it goes to the shareholder in two ways. It goes to the shareholder through stock buybacks, about 55 or 56%, and the rest, about 35, 36%, is paid to the shareholder through excessive dividends. But those are not sustainable. That doesn't stay the basic economy, the natural organic growth, which means growth in revenue, basic revenue growth is robust. It isn't, it's low single digits and has been that for many, many years. With exceptions, yeah. of course. But on average, that's what it is. So if you were so, a financial doctor, you would be concerned that in a time when 36 million people have lost their jobs, the stock market is doing just fine. That cognitive dissonance, I believe you probably find to be very troubling. It is troubling and it's unrealistic. Again, it's engineered. It's mm-hmm. engineered this time by the fact that the Fed has poured trillions of dollars in the markets, double, triple the first care package. And so the business community, the stock market says, there's just no way for business to fail because particularly the banks, because the liquidity is there to survive anything. So why do we need to worry about a really serious downturn as we did in 07 or 08? Because the Fed today, in today's world, will take care of those kinds of issues, and they are not going to let the economy go to hell in a Mm handbasket. So Mm -hmm. again, that's another quite phony issue. It's not reflective of the reality of this day. But let me mention two other quick things about why the economy was not robust. We talked about unemployment at 3.5%, and that's accurate, 3.5% or 3.6 or whatever it is. Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that during a period of four weeks, 3.5% of the people said, I've looked for a job and I couldn't find one. That's what it meant. And that is a number that has been used consistently for 40 years. It is a correct number, but it doesn't reflect reality. And what I mean by that is that if you were to look at the numbers of people who should be working and who are not, people of working age, let's say, I looked at mostly men between the ages of 25 and 55, that's prime working area. So Mm -hmm. out are the school kids and out are the retirement people. These are people who should be working. And you look and say that the people who have stopped looking for a job are close to 21%. So the total number is 21 plus 3.6. That's the real unemployment. So if you look at a policy perspective, you can't just look at the people who are not looking for a job in the last four weeks. You have to see <laughs> who is not working in this country. That's what I think unemployment is about. People yeah. are not working who should be working. 
And they're not working because they've given up, because there are no jobs for them, because it's too difficult, and mostly because they've tried repeatedly, hundreds of times, and have just finally given up. And they live on food stamp, on philanthropy, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge number. And now, in reality, now we are in 20 plus percent of real unemployment of people who just lost their jobs. So we're now upwards, probably close to 40% of real. 40%, yeah. That's why the economy has not been strong. A lot of what you say, Peter, reminds me that what gets measured gets done. And it does seem that our system of measurement is out of date with what's going on in the world. You mentioned it before with GDP. GDP might be 3%, but that doesn't tell you the overall health. That just gives an aggregate number and the unemployment number is misleading. It sounds like we need a, a new system of measurement. Would that be correct? Without doubt. A system that really captures the reality of what's happening in the marketplace. Exactly right. We need those kinds of measurements. They're not all that difficult to get. By the way, any number that I've told you, the Treasury knows that, the Fed knows that. Yeah. They've chosen for years not to really own up to the reality of what's been going on in America. It was mm-hmm. not politically correct to do that for whatever reason. So it was a conspiracy, if you will, of convenience to use numbers that really don't make sense. For example, close to 60% of American homes have to borrow money at the end of most months to put food on the table. That was before COVID, not now. Now, that is a powerful, strong economy, the strongest economy in the world. Give me a break. So those are the kind of issues that existed before. And now COVID has just totally, totally brought that, as you said, on front pages of newspapers, television, whatever. Now we understand. So the challenge for us is, are we willing to do something about this? Or are we going to revert to the way we handle the economy, the way we obfuscated reality? Mm -hmm. That's what scares me. Because what was, was not sustainable. Well, there also seems to have been some abdication on the part of the financial press, because as you so well pointed out before, these numbers have always been there. It's just been the interest of the industry not to report those numbers, just report the big number, and the big number said everything is fine and keep on trucking. Well, part of what you've been an early champion of is something called stakeholder capitalism, and that's opposed to shareholder capitalism. And for those who might not be familiar with those terms, explain what the difference is. I will start by making this assertion. I will assert that capitalism is the most powerful creator of prosperity and growth that humankind ever invented, period. Mm -hmm. And we've tried just about everything else. In one way or another, in one country or another, one continent or another, we've tried just about everything else. And the only thing that really works is capitalism. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the full story because the issue of capitalism, meaning free enterprise, entrepreneurship, et cetera, free markets, that's what capitalism is about. The challenge is to define two things, the rules of engagement of capitalism, and secondly, who should benefit from capitalism? Who are the beneficiaries of the prosperity and growth that captains can produce. Got yeah. So to put it in another That's, way, you're, you're saying, what are we asking capitalism to do? As simply as that. And that's called governance, the rules of the road for mm-hmm. capitalism. Modern capitalism started really after the Second World War. 
from 45 to about mid 80s, we had a version of capitalism that was really basically stakeholder capitalism. And what that means is that capitalism was asked to optimize the interests of about four, five, six stakeholders. They were the customer, the most important one of all. If you don't take care of them, you're toast. Yep. And the employees who work there and the shareholder and the corporation itself and society. The society has many aspects, let's say, including what happens to the environment, what happens to the kids in your neighborhood and so forth. So those were stakeholders. And every decision that a corporation made had to take into consideration what were the effects on those stakeholders and how the resources should be applied so that you generate and provide the benefits to each one of those stakeholders. Now, what's interesting is, I'll give you one example. From 45 to about mid-90s, if you look at two graphs, and I'm going to draw it in your mind, and it's easy. If you look at the growth of productivity during this period of almost 40 years, you see one straight line going up. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the second line, the second graph, which is, in essence, wages. What happened to wages? You put those graphs together, you can't tell there are two lines. Because <laughs> as productivity went up, wages went up. Mm -hmm. One for one. It's, it's unbelievable. Two colors, you can't tell what the difference is. That's great. And that's the version of stakeholder capitalist work. And that's what made America the most powerful economic, most dominant economic and military force in the world. About mid-80s, there was another cabal made up of business leadership, owners, and government mm -hmm. under President Reagan, who decided, wait a minute, we can make a lot more money for ourselves if we don't pay people so well. After all, why do we have to pay people that well? An economist called Milton Friedman, University of Chicago, mm -hmm. years before that, wrote an article basically saying, the role of business should be to create maximum value for shareholders, not stakeholders, yep. shareholders. So the shareholders say, we like that. Mm -hmm. So let's do that. So now instead of having four or five or six critical stakeholders, you have one, and that's the shareholder. Mm -hmm. So this is the era of shareholder primacy, as I call it. Yeah, and that's and a zero-sum so game. It's a zero-sum game. Everything that could be used to drive and maximize, there were two bad words in the new rules of the game for capitalism. Maximize short-term shareholder value. Mm -hmm. And the two bad words are short-term and maximization. So we're no longer thinking big. We're no longer thinking about great things that can happen over time. We're thinking about the next quarter. Mm -hmm. Why? Right. Because it's easy to measure, to your point earlier. Very easy to measure. The financial community can go to sleep and they know what they need. Show me the results for next quarter. Are the profits higher next quarter than they were the quarter before. Yeah, and as I listened to you, Peter, too, I would imagine part of that justification in the mid-80s was that we had really had global competition. So there was a sense that, oh, my goodness, these other countries don't have to pay their workers that much. If we're going to compete, we have to compete with them on cost and keep things low. And that always becomes the way people think to get what they want. Exactly. And globalization is a factor, was a real factor. Mm -hmm. But it was our choice to outsource products and services to be manufactured overseas. That was a choice. We didn't have to do that. 
Yeah. In some cases, maybe it was obviously the right thing to do. If producing a T-shirt will cost you $10 to make here and 50 cents to make in China, I think you have to take a breath and say, my goodness, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. But the rest of the things, there were choices and the difference wasn't great. And the cost to us of giving up that manufacturing is humongous well, and lasting and enduring. And yeah. so we just made a series of big decisions. We didn't even think about them because we didn't have to think about it. We didn't have to think about the fact that we're squeezing the life and exploiting our workers. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're really doing damage to society. That's not yeah. important because the CEO had one job, maximize short-term shareholder value. Mm -hmm. That was the rule. And by the way, the financial community said, you deliver that for us. I don't care if the corporation was one penny short on your earnings, you got crucified. <laughs> but it's okay for you to make not a million dollars. In the early days, if you make more than a million dollars, you pay a big, huge penalty. Now we say you can get paid 10, 20, 50, $100 million. It's okay. It's okay. So long as you deliver. Mm -hmm. The continuous basis, sustained basis. If you can't do that, you're in trouble. We either buy the company away from you, or we come in, we fire you, and put somebody else in charge. So, so I that's how to you, the Peter. system works. Yeah, so I listen to you. I mean, as we begin to imagine stakeholder capitalism, in a lot of ways, it's returning to the old capitalism, maybe in a little bit more an enlightened way. African Americans oh, yes. were excluded from that. But those are essentially the essences. And in this stakeholder capitalism, you have said there is no more important relationship other than the company to the worker and the employee, and that it requires a change of mindset as to how companies look at workers and employees. Speak about that. Well, you're absolutely right. That is the key. That is the fundamental issue where to begin. And many others have the same kind of caliber of importance, but this one is the critical issue. Let me not start with the moral issue and societal issues. Let me start with the business issue. In the 21st century, for a business to thrive and succeed, it must do two fundamental things. I'm not talking about the competency of getting the right product, the safe product that customer wants. I'm talking about what's the difference between success and failure of companies that do all of that. And there are two things, only two things, that are the differentiator and the driver of success. One, you have to increase productivity. Mm -hmm. And two, you have to learn how to innovate. Innovation and increasing productivity. That's it. Everything else is a commodity. That's, that's the it. list. That's the list. Very simple. And that's what we should be looking at and that's what we should be measuring. But we're not, of course. And yet the question then becomes, so who does that? Who creates innovation and who increases productivity for a corporation? Mm -hmm. And the answer is very simple. It's yeah. not the CEO. It's not the C-suite is your employees. Mm -hmm. I'm told all the time, Jesus, you can't look at Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. They're technology companies. That's different. Why is it different? It's not technology doesn't build technology. It's right. people who do that. <laughs> yeah. Hello? It's people who do that constantly. They innovate and innovate and innovate. And you have to respect the people who do that. You have to pay them people well. You have to motivate them to do that. You can't pay 
people horrible wages and then expect them to wake up in the middle of the night and say, tomorrow morning, I'm really going to work for this company and create new ideas, increase productivity and innovate for the consumer. Huh? How does mm -hmm. that work? <laughs> so you have to think about this. You have to have a different relationship. And here we come to the basics, a different relationship until business recognizes that one of the most important assets they have are the people and the quality of the people, the motivation of the people, the interest of the people to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable what happened. And this is what the technology companies that have been invented, they've always went back in time to do stakeholder capitalism. Google, Apple, et cetera, they paid their people through the nose. Mm -hmm. And they treat them like kings. They treat them well. They respect them. They motivate them. They give them all kinds of perks because they know that's what it takes to win, to innovate constantly and to increase productivity. And that's what yeah. it takes. And as you say, too many companies have looked at their employees as a cost. And that yeah, well, is they are the wrong because, mindset. Well, listen, if you maximize short-term shareholder value, you look at the largest part of your PNL, profit and loss. What is it? The cost of labor, the cost of people. So when you have the largest cost, the natural instinct to say, well, if I want to increase my profitability, what do I do? I squeeze the biggest element on my profit and loss statement. So I'm going to squeeze the people. And they did that successfully. Capitalism didn't fail for the last 40 years. It did great. Mm -hmm. It made us 30% quite rich beyond our imagination because capitalism works. But we just chose to say there's only one beneficiary and that's the shareholder. And yeah. that was the problem. So now we have to change all that around. And that's the business imperative for going back to a form of stakeholder capitalism. The other one is obviously the fact that the business of business needs to be to help society solve societal problems. That's why companies existed. That's why they should exist. Not just to make a handful of us rich, is to make societally benefit. And if you do that, everybody wins. Everybody mm -hmm. wins. And so the mission of stakeholder capitalism has to be inclusive growth and prosperity. Let me ask you where we stand right now, because stakeholder capitalism has gained a lot of momentum, perhaps best manifested by the Business Roundtable, hundreds of companies that have signed on to endorse it as opposed to shareholder capitalism. But you know, Peter, there's an old line from Mike Tyson, which says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And we have all been punched in the face, some of them harder than others, like the travel industry. So the question I have for you is, will those companies stick with this stakeholder capitalism model, or are you concerned they're going to revert to that short-term thinking in these very difficult times? I'm very concerned about that. And that's what I'm spending my waking moments. We are talking earlier about my golf game. Well, there's no golf game. <laughs> I don't have the time anymore for that. I'm just not smart enough to walk and chew gum. So what I'm working on now, along with Just Capital and other institutions, is to make sure that business really makes the change. It's imperative we do that. Not only for the sake of business, but for the sake of our society, for the sake of our democracy. We cannot continue to say that only a few of us, a minority, a large minority at that, 
can thrive and the other people are in the kind of difficulties that we were before COVID happens and now exacerbated. And it's exacerbated because these people, the other 70% or so, did not have adequate access to medical care, did not have adequate to decent nutrition. So that's where the comorbidity issues, obesity, diabetes, heart issues, yeah. etc., even cancer, because people don't go often enough to the doctors because we have now millions of people who are no longer insured and so forth. So that has to change. And mm -hmm. business must lead the way. And that's what drives me. And people are not aware of this and they don't think on these terms, including business. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is the people who operated companies often lived in a bubble and they looked at aggregate numbers. And by the way, the inequality is by zip code. It's yeah. not north, south, east, west. Within three miles of anybody's home, of the rich guys, there's a zip code where the other people live. Yeah. Where the I think in Chicago, within a mile or two, it's a 20-year difference in life expectancy. That's within exactly. a mile or two. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. It's like America and Africa and the Maasai tribesmen in Africa. That's exactly the span of difference of lifetime. And so that has to change. This is the essence of what America is. It's sort of an obligation of the pursuit of happiness, which means in today's world, the pursuit of happiness is the ability to be educated, to be the best you can be. Mm -hmm. I'm You're a believer a in my soul because I'm a product of that. Yeah. No, why don't we take a moment here and... If we can, let's digress for a minute, because you have an incredible story that I think really helps inform a lot of your points of view right now and gives them a lot of resonance. You were born in Romania, and you did not come into this country until you were 15 years old, went to some of the finest schools, ended up as the CEO of one of the largest, most respected advertising agencies in the country. Start with that story, which was right before 1939, right before World War II broke out is when you were born. Tell us what happened to you in Romania? I'll abbreviate a very long, complicated war story. Like most <laughs> war stories, they're all complicated. If you came out from over there, you have a story. But basically what happened in Romania was taken over first by the Germans and then by the Russians. And my father was an oil engineer. He was a general manager of the largest oil field in Romania that the Germans wanted and used to fuel the war machine of Germany. And then the Russians came in and they took over the oil of Romania. But anyway, my father and mother came to New York. He was imprisoned by the Germans. That's another story because mm -hmm. he was part of the Allies, but he was Romanian born and so was my mother. But he was running the oil fields that were owned by Exxon, Standard yep. Oil, New Jersey. So he came to New York in 1947 for a two week trip to headquarters as a general manager of a very important part of the operation. We were, in school. It was in January yeah. of 47. You're like we're eight years old or something. I was exactly eight years old. And my dad and mom were in New York and the Iron Curtain comes down. Like that? Now, just like that, overnight. And the Russians now take over. Now in New York, my father, who had friends in the OSS, who now started the CIA, tell my dad, we know that in Romania, your name is on the list to be arrested and killed. Mm -hmm. You can't go back. You can't help your kids because you'll all die. So you got to stay here. So fortunately for all of us, they stay there. 
And so eventually we stayed with my grandparents in part of Transylvania. Eventually they arrested my grandfather because he was a former governor of most of Transylvania and they killed him in prison. Yeah. They arrested my brother and I with my grandmother. They took us close to the Russian border and they put us, I was north of 10. I can't remember exactly the timing. I didn't write a diary, but it was about like that. And my brother and I worked separately by working hard labor. I cleaned sewers for a few years. Then I dug holes for electric calls. We worked from six in the morning until six, seven o'clock at night, yeah. six days a week. Of course, right. no schooling. We had no books, no nothing. Right. But you were a small enough guy me. that you could get into some of those places in the sewers, I bet. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I could fit. I was little, still a 10-year-old, you know? Yeah. Or <laughs> anyway, so that was life. And then fortunately, they kept us alive, actually, mm -hmm. because they killed 300,000 people in Romania, the communists did. Anybody who was a potential threat, they just killed them in a different way. But that's another story. So they kept us alive, probably thinking that maybe we can use the kids against their parents. So in 1953, they came to my father and said, you got to spy for us if you want to see your kids alive again. So my father and mother talked overnight. And they went to the FBI and said, look, this is what happened. What can we do? At first, they said, become a double agent. My father demurred. He said, look, I've seen that play before. Oh, no, no, not good endings in those plays. No good endings <laughs> ever happened. That. So they said, go to the public, tell your story. Maybe then the Russians who wanted the world to think that they're so hot stuff, that they're better than America, that they will tell the Romanians you can't kill the kids. And in essence, that's what happened. The story took flight in America in 1953, every little newspaper in America and the big television talked about the Georgescu boys, blackmail in Romania, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a wonderful congresswoman from Ohio, Frances Payne Bolton, bless her heart. She was a force. In 1953, she was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Congress. Remember, she was a woman. She called my dad up. He says, don't worry, I'll get your boys out. It took about a year, but she did. She helped Eisenhower become president. She probably went to the president and said, I get the boys out. Yeah, or I got some chits for him with like him. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so we got traded, as I understand it, from a bunch of Russians, spies that we held in America. So that's how we got here. So I lived the American dream. I was 15. I didn't speak a word of English. I hadn't gone to school for four years. Unbelievable. And damn it. The headmaster of Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, good school. Called my dad said, please bring your kid to our school. He deserved it. He's earned it. The guy, the principal, Sultan Stowe, said, I read the story. He learned lots of other things there. Bring him there. <laughs> yeah. So we went for dinner, and he said to me, look, if you can pass your courses at the end of the year on your own with no recognition of your background and all the rest of it, you get to stay. Otherwise, I'll find the right school for you. Is that okay? I had no clue what the hell he was talking about. Oh. I was smart enough to say, yes, sir. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> so the rest is history. After three years, I went to Princeton and then to Stanford Business School. So I had a great education. That was my advantage. You see, that's the American dream. That's well, what we've got to do for all the kids in America. They have to get access to great education from the age of three. How does that influence the way you look at this current situation? Because having lived that life under communist rule, being the beneficiary of the American dream, I would imagine just tremendous wells of gratitude for people who helped you along the way to allow you to get to where you got. 
you know, being the CEO of Young and Rubicam, that perspective brings, I think, a new intelligence to what we're looking at now. How does it inform the way you feel about this situation, maybe the way we should feel a little bit more about this situation? Look, I have said I can look in the mirror and I know that I am the best Peter Georgescu I can be. I am mm-hmm. now a grandparent. We have four, we have right? four wonderful granddaughters. Mm-hmm. And I want for them, and not just for the four of them, I want for every son, daughter, grandson, and granddaughter in America to have the opportunities I have had, which means good education and support as you grow up. Now, I had some tough times in there, but they informed me. They created a willingness to work hard and to understand the difference. And I watched socialism work up close and personal. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Now, people don't understand. Some people think socialism means socially consciousness over a strong support system. No, it doesn't mean that. It means controlling the means of production and distribution. And that's a totally different system. It doesn't work. And so free enterprise, back to where we started, free enterprise capitalism works beautifully, but we have to make sure that the rules of the game favor society as well as business so that everybody wins inclusively. And that's what I saw happen in America by and large. And it's now time for us to commit ourselves to say, let's not waste this tragedy Let's make sure that we do the right things. Let's make sure that we can get through the end of this virus safely on balance, that we pay attention to science and to data and do the right things. And we know it can be done. Look at China, look at Germany, look at Australia, look at Hong Kong, look at New Zealand and others. And you see right now this virus has disappeared. That's right. Not because it goes away by itself, but because if it is not transmitted from person to person, it eventually disappears. But mm-hmm. only if you do that, it doesn't mm-hmm. disappear by itself. And these other countries have shown us the way, we're way, way behind. We don't have the ability to test, which is critical because you test and then you trace and then you isolate and then the goddamn virus goes away. Yeah, yeah. So we have to do it intelligently, but at the other end, we got to commit ourselves to a different form of business, to a different form of governance. And I am optimistic. And I'll tell you, I see what has happened. I was vice chairman of one of the largest hospitals in the New York metropolitan area in a great hospital. New York Presbyterian, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'm involved and I watch every day. We got reports of what's going on. And the tragedies were remarkable. We had over... 24, 2,500 patients of COVID in our hospital. We had close to 900 patients on ventilators. And the heroism of the nurses and the doctors and the people who clean the floors and the people who distribute medicines and food and so forth in this country gives one such inspiration about the goodness of the American people. And we have to recognize that we have a soul in this country, mm-hmm. that we, when at our best, we are a democracy. And that we have to throw a lot of the bad stuff away. We've got to throw a lot of the corruption in politics and business and whatever. And we've got to come back and to recognize 
who we really are at our best. And that's really worthwhile. We've been demonstrated the success of the truckers and the doctors and the nurses and what has been done and the folks who stock the shelves in our retail stores and so yeah. on and so on. It's heroic. It's wonderful. Why can't we do that when things are so-called normal? We need to learn the kind of compassion and caring that's in our souls that we have just demonstrated that we're capable of giving. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to become better people. This is yeah. the lesson of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. We too have to become better people, not only healthier people, but healthier of heart. Mm -hmm. And look with caring towards each other, to help each other, to recognize that we are all different, we're a booyabess of different kinds of people in this land. We're all the same. We're all humans. We got to work together. Red and blue no longer works, man. No, we got no. to throw those Run labels out. Absolutely. We also need to be better prepared. And I think that old axiom that we have to start repairing the roof when the sun is shining. And we don't do enough of that in this country. We wait for well, disaster. Well, you see, again, back to stakeholder capitalism, one of the critical stakeholders, the corporation itself. And before it was milking the corporation, productivity is down, investment in research and development is down, investment in basic research is down. And that's what you're talking about. That's what preparedness means. That's How right. do we survive? Innovation is critical. We, America, introduce every major technological breakthrough. The only one that we missed was Sputnik, and then we got and fixed that real fast. Real fast. <laughs> but here we are today, 5G came, and where are we? The only thing we can do is to beg other countries not to buy the Chinese product. That's about it. That's the strategy. Again, it's a small factoid of a symptom of sickness. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to change. We have to think more long-term. We have to think creatively. We need to be innovative again. All the things that we know how to do. And we have to go back to that and put our energies in that area. By the way, we have another pandemic that's galloping towards us. And we know it. And it's coming. Data is clear. It's telling us it's coming, folks. And this is not only going to kill people. It's going to kill the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's climate change. It's right behind it. It's yeah. right behind. On its heels, that's for sure. And so we have plenty of challenges here, but we have enormous potential, an enormous opportunity for us to fix the problems with imagination, with creativity, with caring and compassion. We have to think about that. We have to also love our planet. It's mm -hmm. the only thing we got, man. <laughs> we can't live on the moon or Mars or whatever. Let me close, Peter, with a question about business. And many people believe that business, with its obsessive focus on short-term results that you've spoken to, is largely responsible for this great inequality we are seeing now in America. So why should business be, how can business be trusted to be a critical part of the solution? Well, I believe at the end of the day, because we don't have Martians run these companies. We have Americans. We have good people. Mm -hmm. And they are, by and large, good people. And we've got led astray. Sometimes we were tempted by too many things. We became entitled and narcissistic. And we got to look in the mirrors. As we look at America and recognize what we did was not exactly right. Mm -hmm. And here's an opportunity for us to redeem ourselves, not just for a period of time, but 
we must become and be vigilant about this and try to not do it again. But most importantly, we've got to start to get back on the right track. And that's the beginning and that's the task at hand. And that's what we've got to do in the months ahead to make sure that we get started the right way. There are plenty of good people, as you said. BRT, the Business Roundtable, did a very courageous act when they came out and said, business role is not just to make profits, we all must take into consideration the needs of society. And so I applaud what they did, it was courageous. And so many of the rest of us now, as I mentioned, just capital for one and many others who are working now, hand in glove, we work with Aspen Institute, we work with the Business Roundtable, we're working with the World Forum in Davos and others with IBC. And so I'm optimistic that we can do that, but you can't take anything for granted. You can't say, well, somebody else is going to do it. You can't go there. So if you're passionate, if you understand, then you have an obligation. If you see, you got to fix it. Mm -hmm. You see the problem, it's your responsibility to go fix it. And that's something. my mission. Give us your website, Peter. You have a lot of information there about the book oh, we mentioned, Capitalist Arise, and your other books and your articles on Forbes. What is it? You just find me at petergeorgescu.com or just petergeorgescu. You'll go to my website. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for sharing this information and these insights with us today. It was a real, real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. A delight, Denver. All the best to you. I'm delighted that you keep doing what you're doing. So good luck to you. Thank you.